You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast. Interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Kelly, welcome to Real Faith Stories. I'm very excited to hear your story today. Thank you. It's really great to get to talk to you about this. We met through what I call a power couple. (laughs) Yes. Jamie and Donna Winship, who you have quite a history with. Before we dig into that and your amazing story, could you please share a bit about your upbringing and what's led you to being a identity coach today? I grew up a missionary kid in Papua New Guinea. I was taught from an early age how to walk with God. We lived in a really remote tribe called the Kumon tribe in the highlands of New Guinea, and I was homeschooled by my parents after my early years in a boarding school, and we didn't go to church. There weren't churches, so I would just hear my dad sharing things that he was learning, and it was really beautiful to see him be really excited about learning to hear God's voice and that we could be guided by His Spirit and that it was a living, breathing relationship. Tell me an experience you had with your father sharing some of the things he was learning. Well, I can remember him sitting in the chair, and he would call us, and we would just gather around, and he would share things with us to just know that we could hear God's voice. So I remember being quite young because I was still at the boarding school, and my brother and I would be home for a period of time, and then we would be sent back to the school. So I went back to the boarding school, and I was thinking about the things my dad had said about hearing the Lord's voice. And I was crossing the playground, and there was a bunch of papers that somebody had ripped up, and they were just scattered all over the ground. And I just heard, Kelly, pick those up. And I was like, that's my dad's voice. I'm not going to pick those up. But then I was just thinking, but what if it's not? What if it's not? What if it's God's voice? And what does it hurt for me to pick them up? So I just did. I just ran around and grabbed all the paper and picked it all up and put it in the trash. And the piece that followed that experience made me know that that's not what I feel when my dad tells me to do something and I do it. It's the peace that you feel when you hear God's voice and you respond. Mm. You respond in obedience. And I was hooked. Wow. So that was your first experience recognizing that you heard the voice of God. It really was. Yes. After you experienced that and you experienced that peace, did something shift inside of you? Yes. That, unfortunately, is exactly what did happen. I did hear God's voice and I knew that He was speaking to me, but you know, I I kind of grew up and became a little complacent in that. Hmm. Which is a really sad thing, I think, that happens to children that get truth at a really young age, and they think that it's all there is, and they don't know that they're just getting like what babies get through a food grinder, which is like a steak that's mashed up to <laughs> tiny little pieces. Yeah, I didn't really think about, like, this is a big, rich thing that I could walk in and grow in. So there were quite a few years of my life that I didn't really pay much attention and didn't make listening to God a priority. There was a time where I really just thought God's given me a good mind and I have a great upbringing and a good family and that's what I rely on. I stopped letting it be alive and thriving and in the moment. What happened in your life that caused you to switch back to it being alive and thriving? Well, my husband and I got married and a few years after we were married, we sensed the Lord inviting us to leave our comfort zone and go to be missionaries in a place where people had never heard of God. So after a pretty extensive training 
program. We ended up in Venezuela, South America, and joined a existing team of missionaries working among Wadao Indians. So for me to get there, clearly, I was hearing God. I knew that He was opening doors for us, and we were going through those doors, and He was leading, guiding, and showing us things. It was a very uh, beautiful time of responding to the Lord. But I will say that through all of that, I didn't have that kind of intimacy. You know, now when I think about introducing myself, one of the things I most want people to know is not only that I'm a wife to David and a mother to four great kids and a grandmother to three, but that when I'm quiet and I hear God's voice, I sense him saying to me, you're my girl. And he pulls me in close. And I just have this real visual experience where I'm just tucked in beside him. And then we're talking about whatever is on my mind or whatever I'm going through. But I have to say through all those years of being in Venezuela and going through the getting there and even the living there, man, I was guided by God and it was a great time, but it wasn't that intimate. It wasn't that like, I'm his girl. That kind of really shifted one night when a tribal kid broke into our house with the intentions to kill and rape me. Whoa. Tell us about that. Yeah. So we had been there for about six years. We had learned the language. We had learned the culture. We had provided all kinds of humanitarian aid things for the tribal people. Along with our teammates, we were being a literacy program, beginning to translate Bible lessons with the plan to teach them about God. Mm -hmm. They're very remote. Our home was uh, an hour from the nearest road. We arrived by river. And the nearest road was just a port town with really very little offering. And then it was another hour to a bigger city where there was a kind of a primitive shopping opportunity and clinics and things like that. So we were pretty remote. My husband had gone for a supply run to the larger town, which was about five hours away. And while he was gone, I guess, the tribal kids were talking and this boy said that he was going to come up and that was his intention. I later found out that he was coming to kill and rape me. The, the tribal kids didn't believe him, although I think they were aware of it. And I had no idea. The day that my husband left, the girls, my daughters and I were in the village. They were our friends. We loved those people. And we were just passing through and talking to all of the people that we loved. And then that evening, I made a special dinner just to celebrate us and made a blueberry cobbler and put the girls to bed like we always did and went to sleep myself, laying in bed really intentionally thinking and asking the Lord, please let me sleep all night. There was there were no windows on our, well, I should say there were no glass windows on our house. We had screen and bars. And one of the things I loved about that was that you could hear outside. Mm -hmm. You could hear the, the crickets and all of the early evening sounds. And then in the deep of the night, you would hear the bullfrogs and the owls. And sometimes they would wake me up and it would be kind of scary because it was very dark and I didn't know what I was hearing. Mm -hmm. So I laid in bed that night and I just said, God, please let me sleep all night. What happened next was pretty remarkable because I woke up like it was morning. I was completely and fully awake. And in laying there, kind of lamenting a bit, I heard the two doors of our house open. The metal door on the outside, I heard it click closed. And then we had a kind of a mudroom area and with a screen door that had a spring on it. And I heard the spring open and close. My oldest daughter was known to walk in her sleep. So I thought, well, maybe she's walking in her sleep. But I thought, no, that would be the opposite if she was going out. She would hear the screen door and then the metal door. 
So I got up and I checked to see if she was okay, went in the room and she was a little bit awake, but she hadn't been up walking around. So when I came out of their bedroom, I faced this kid who I knew really well from the village. He's actually would be like my brother because of the kinship relationship we had with his family. He was wearing clothes that we bought him and he was holding a knife from my kitchen up over his head and waving it wildly at me. His eyes were crazy. I could tell that he wasn't in his right mind. I thought about what I should do and an interesting thing happened. You know, in near-death experiences, how they say that you, your life flashes before your eyes? Mm-hmm. Brian, what happens is that your mind starts operating a lot faster than it usually does. Your brain is functioning at a much higher capacity. And so everything just seems to slow down, but you're able to think about so much more in that moment. Mm. So as my mind was just expanding like an accordion, there were all of these things going on. One thing was that I was remembering my grandmother who was robbed in a restaurant years and years ago, and she was very belligerent and just scared those robbers right out of the restaurant. Mm. So I was channeling my grandmother, if you could say (laughs) that, and just thinking, if I'm really bold here, maybe I can scare them off. So I was speaking really boldly and I was moving toward him. I pulled the door closed behind my daughters and really hoped that they wouldn't wake up. So I was moving through the house, turning on lights, hoping that somebody that might be passing in the river that was just in front of our house might see the lights on or perhaps down about a quarter mile where the rest of the village was. People may look up and see the lights on and would wonder what was happening. Mm -hmm. So I moved through the house and he stayed in front of me with this knife and kept telling me to go in my bedroom. He was speaking in Spanish, and I just acted like I didn't understand him. So one level of my mind was thinking of how to talk to him. So I tried this belligerent, you know, get out of the house, what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. And then I tried being really afraid, and I was crying and sort of pleading. And then I tried asking him, you know, where's his family? And when I said that to him, he got really upset because he was thinking that maybe I didn't know him. So I knew that wasn't a good way to go. After I turned on all the lights, I backed myself up in front of the girl's door because I still didn't really know why he was there. I didn't know his intentions. And if perhaps he was there to bother the girls, it was he there to bother me. I really didn't know, but I was definitely that mother bear protecting my daughters. So I stood in front of the door. And although my daughters had instructions to not you know, come out and see what's going on, if they were hearing things, they were sleepy. They didn't really know. And so one of my daughters opened the door or started to open the door to see what was happening. And I immediately turned around to pull it shut because I didn't want her to see that. Mm -hmm. And when I turned around, uh, the boy drew the knife back and stabbed me in the back of my, my, my middle back. Oh, man. Yeah. What's so funny, not funny, but funny about that is that you'd think that it's going to hurt like a thousand paper cuts, but it didn't hurt at all. It just made this really strong sound. And so I thought, because there was no pain, maybe maybe I, he didn't really stab me. So I reached back, and immediately my hands were covered with blood, and I knew that that's what had happened. My mind, again, is going into overdrive, and I'm thinking, okay, I need to put some pressure on my back. So I moved to a wall near the door, and I pushed up against the back, and my brain is just firing. And the whole time, I'm thinking, what can I say? What can I do? And I'm having this full-on conversation with God. And I'm not saying why. It's interesting that that thought, that question didn't even come to my mind. I just kept saying, God, what? What are you doing? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? 
And after I would say what, I would just sense this voice saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And when I heard that voice, it kind of married to so many times in my life where I had doubted. I had doubted, was I hearing God's voice? Did I know him? And when I heard it, it was like, I do know your voice. Right in the middle of this unbelievable situation, you're having this dialogue with the Lord and you you come to this full-on realization that you've been hearing his voice virtually your whole life, right? It did, yes. <laughs> it was a familiar voice that I've always known. Wow. Okay, please continue. Yeah, so I was saying this to the Lord, and I heard him saying, I'm with you. And then my heart's response just kept this refrain of, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. It was the thing that I just kept saying. So that was the level of conversation I was having with the Lord while I'm thinking about what to do next, while I'm processing what's happening to me, while I'm thinking of every first aid thing I know, yeah. and I'm sitting there on the floor just trying to figure out what to do. And the kid is standing over me, and he's saying to me, take your clothes off, and I'm pretending like I don't know what he's saying. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm starting to get really fuzzy-headed, really foggy-brained. And I'm looking down, and it's starting to get kind of dark in the room, and suddenly I see in front of me his hand with the knife coming right at my chest. And just before the blade touches my chest, his wrist flips and the back of the knife bumps my chest instead of the blade. And I really had the sense that in that moment he intended to kill me, but God turned his hand. Wow. It was intense. Mm-hmm. So in sitting there, I realized I'm not going to be able to talk this guy out of this and I'm going to try to get some help. So another tactic that I tried was to say, I'm going to call our coworkers. So we had this line that we could call inter- uh, to each other, like a walkie-talkie kind of thing. And so I started crawling and making my way to the room where I would make that call. And as I was going there, he stabbed me again, but I wasn't aware of it until they were stitching me up later. But as I was on my way to the room, I passed out and landed in my office chair, which has roller wheels on it. And so apparently I was just sitting there in an unconscious state and I started coming to What's interesting is I've heard science talk about how our hearing is the last thing to go. Mm-hmm. And so as I'm coming into a consciousness, I start hearing something. And what I'm hearing is my daughters in the other room, and they're just screaming prayers to God. They're not calling me. They're calling God. How old were they at that time? They were 12. The oldest was 12. The next one was seven. The youngest was seven and the middle one was 10. So I hear all their voices and they're just praying and calling, God, protect our mommy, save our mommy. And one of them was quoting a passage of scripture that we had memorized because I used to tell the girls that in the moment that you need it, you can't run for the Bible and look up a verse. You have to have it. And they had known that this favorite passage was Psalm 139 that says, if I settle on the far side of the sea, which is where I felt in Venezuela so many times. But if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. One of the girls was yelling that verse. So I was aware of myself then. I heard those verses. There was this burn that just lit up in my chest, and I knew I had to do something. So I was aware that I looked like I was passed out, and I really tried to not change my expression. I tried to not allow my eyes to show that I was focusing, but I was aware that he was pulling me by my feet in this roller chair 
toward the bedroom. And so I just gathered all the strength I could and I lunged at him out of that chair and we started this kind of a tussle, which if you know me, I'm so not a fighter. So it was just, I, it was just actually funny in the oddest kind of way to imagine myself trying to fight this guy off while I'm losing blood. And mm. I just was saying, God, I can't do this. There's, there's no way that I'm going to fight this guy off. But we're in this kind of a standing tussle. And eventually, I have him kind of pinned behind my back against the screen door. And I'm banging the screen door as I'm trying to bang my head into him or my elbows into him. And he's got the knife in front of me. And it was every bit like the worst kind of movie you could imagine where the knife's coming close and my hand's on the wrist pushing it away and then it's coming close again. Wow. And Oh, it, there, there was one level of my mind that was definitely seeing comedy in some of these scenes. Like, if this is a movie, no one is going to watch this. This is <laughs> terrible. So as that was happening and I'm just saying, God, I can't do this, suddenly for no reason that I knew, he dropped the knife and ran out. So that ended my interaction with him, but it didn't, in, it didn't end my delivery and survival story. So as he ran out, my mind's wondering, how did he get in? And I remembered that as we were coming home from the village, we had our, our pet bird flew off across the river and the girls were really worried about it. And we came in and I totally forgot to lock the door. Like, can you believe that happened? So the door was wide open and I realized that if he came in through the door, I would need to lock it. And at this point, I really couldn't see anymore. I think I'd lost enough blood that my vision was very impaired and I everything was very, very dark, although the lights were on. But I just said to the Lord, okay, if the keys are where I left them as I was passing through the mudroom, then we kept them on a hook. So if the keys are where they left them, they should be right here. And I just reached my right arm out to where they should be, and they were immediately in my hand. I really just picture the Lord just putting them in my hand wherever I reach. Yeah. But they were immediately in my hand, and I went to the door to lock it. And in trying to lock it, I couldn't get the key in the door, and I fainted again. And this time, I fainted and just slumped all the way down to the ground and was just sitting in kind of a fetal position with my head against the metal door and came to thinking, why am I sleeping like this? and realizing that everything I was experiencing was true and not a dream. So I remembered that I had tried to lock the door, and I reached and realized that it wasn't locked. And I stood up and prayed, God, I can't get this key in. And immediately it went in, and the door clicked. And as the door clicked locked, I could see through the screen that the guy had been crouched right outside the door waiting to see what I was doing. Wow. Yeah, that sent chills through me, knowing that he was just still that— close. Mm -hmm. So with the door locked, now I had to figure out what to do next. So I became aware of a boat motor that I heard approaching in the river. And so I turned on more lights and I was leaning as close as I could to the front window and motioning for whoever might see me to come over. And I heard the boat motor slowing and I heard the boat coming to the dock. And so I realized someone was stopping and then I started thinking, oh my goodness, I've just locked out my rescuers. So I just prayed and asked the Lord that whoever would be coming would be safe and that I could give them the keys and they would know how to unlock the door because these tribal people don't have houses with locks. So I cut a hole in the screen where I was standing and poked the keys through to I did not know who. And they came around and were able to open the door. And when I saw who it was, it was a marvel 
because this was the boy that six years earlier when we had first moved into this tribe had been just the bad boy of the village. And I had told the girls whenever he was around, please come inside because I don't trust him. And now he's the one that God's going to use to come to my rescue. So he came into the house and the Wadao have this way of talking. That's the tribal people's name. They have this way of talking that even if you're just laying in your hammock with a sore back, they just have this thing they say all the time, you're going to die. They just say it all the time. So when he came into the house and he looked at me, he said, you're not going to die. Wow. And he went into the room and he checked on the girls and he said to them in the tribal language, your mom's not going to die. It was unbelievable. It instilled so much hope in me. And it was, again, it was like the voice of God who I'm just constantly saying, God, I trust you. And he's just showing himself trustworthy again and again and again. So in that moment, I didn't know if I would have the tribal language words to say, but I asked the Lord for the words, and I didn't really even know the word for stabbed. I'd never had a reason to use it, but I was able to communicate to these guys what had happened, and I asked them to please go get our coworker in the village. And so one of them stayed with us, and the other one that had come with the bad boy, his name's Carlos, he left and went to get our coworker, Zach. So when Zach came up, he was able to load me into his boat, and we headed off on the journey of the hour to the nearest road, which in our situation could have been impossible. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that river was impassable. It was close enough to the ocean that it was tidal, so it would rise and fall by about six feet. And when it was low tide, you couldn't get through. So it turned out that it was peak high tide. And we were able to just zip right through. And what was usually an hour took about 40 minutes to get to the location of road. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't have a car. So we would always rely on taxis. At this point, it was probably about 530 in the morning. And it would be rare for a taxi to be there. But there was one. (laughs) So they loaded me in this taxi and they took me to the next town, which was an hour away. And in that town, there was a clinic that was not manned by people on a regular basis. It was a clinic where people from Caracas would come and they would do like a hernia clinic and everyone with hernias would come or or eye issues or different things. So they opened the the janitors man um, managed the place. And so they opened this clinic so that I could come in. And meanwhile, my co-worker had called my husband, who was still in this other town, not knowing anything that was happening. And when my husband found out, all sorts of miracles aligned for him to get a plane with our mission board and fly to where I was going to be brought at this clinic. And the plan was that they would fly me to this bigger town. So while I was there at the clinic, people were coming because they had started passing the word and they would call themselves doctors, but I had no confidence in these people. They, they just were plainclothes people coming in. And I'm like, I, I do not know who you are. I have no idea what you're saying. What are, you know, it was yeah. very unsettling. And then suddenly a face appeared that we recognized. It was a doctor from Caracas that had come out and had worked on a tribal guy that we had brought back and forth several times. And so when I saw him, it was again another miracle that he had just done a clinic that week before and he was leaving the next day. So he was there and he looked at my wounds and he said, we've got to stitch these up. So by then the plane that was coming to get me had landed, but shock was setting in and they said that they couldn't transport me until I was more stable. Mm -hmm. So without anesthesia and without really anything, just in this little clinic, um, this doctor 
started stitching me up with the pilot as his assistant. And the pilot was a dear, dear friend of ours. The stitching took a while. And when it was done, they told me that I could lay down. I was sitting up through that whole experience and they told me that I could lay down. And so as soon as I laid down, my lungs were filled with fluids and I didn't know that was happening. So the injury had punctured one of my lungs. So I couldn't breathe at all. And I struggled and gasped and quickly sat back up and said, no, I can't lay down. And the doctor said, we're going to have to intubate and drain your lung. So we're in this little clinic room that as I was sitting there, I was looking around in disbelief at how dirty it is and almost just laughing and saying, God, really, if you saved my life in the tribe only to have me die of sepsis from this little clinic, (laughs) like that's just going to be the most ironic story of all. But As I'm there in this clinic and just trusting God and believing that all of these things have happened for a reason, the guy opens this bottom drawer in this little room, and in that drawer is this exact tube that he needs, and it's shrink-wrapped, so he doesn't have to kind of, you know, (laughs) wash it in the sink and wipe it off on his jeans. And he goes, okay, we're going to have to put this in your lung. So uh, I was just sitting there, and he prepared it, and in it went. And we found a jug that looked like something, you know, moonshiners would carry. (laughs) Yeah, the brown glass. Yeah, kind of like that with a finger hole in the top. Mm -hmm. And they put the other end in it. And I sat there and my blood pressure came back to right and I was stable. And I was able to then fly with all this wound stitched up to this bigger town where when we got there, they looked at the wounds and they said that the guy had done a great job and they wouldn't have to do any repair work. And there, that's where the healing began. So that's kind of the big story of it. And I'll say that while the physical healing started at that point, man, the suffering also started at that point. You know, I think it's kind of easy to die in some cases, especially of injuries like that. But it's really, really hard to live it is such a struggle to recover. It's such an emotional struggle. It's such a physical struggle. And so as I was in the hospital for a few days and then discharged, I came to realize how much IV fluids are our friends Mm. because when you're not on those anymore, it's just totally like my responsibility to give fluid to my body and my responsibility to eat. And none of those things were easy. And then the emotional part, the fear that just really was knocking at my door, just threatening to consume me, was just so intense. So a beautiful thing that really helped a lot was one of the missionary co-workers in our town was taking care of our daughters and got them to write these verses on construction paper. And they taped these verses to the wall in front of my bed in the room where I was uh, recovering. And every time I would wake up and be afraid, I would look up at these verses and it felt just like when Moses put the snake on that staff at Mount Nebo in Jordan and all of the people that were being bitten by the snakes would look up at that and they would see it and they would survive those snake bites. Mm -hmm. So some of the verses, one in particular that I remember said, I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Mm. It impacted me deeply to know that we are safe in God's hands and that our suffering never, ever comes from His hand, but that He's always with us and that He's always walking with us through that. I'm hearkening back to right in the midst of this attack, how you knew you heard the voice of God, how that revelation came to you. 
Yeah. And as you're reading those scriptures, I would suspect that that is exactly what you heard as you read those scriptures as well. Absolutely. During your recovery, what was one of the things that stands out most as the greatest contributor to your healing journey? Well, I would say one of the struggles was allowing the what-ifs of fear to control me. When I thought back through what had actually happened, it was terrifying. But there were times that I would go back through that story and start thinking, what if I had fill in the blank? Mm -hmm. What if I had this? What if I had that? What if I had, you know, lots of different scenarios? It kind of reminds me of those movies that let you create the ending for yourself. Uh So I would sort of create, recreate some parts of that, some real, some different scenes. And as I would do that in my mind, I can't even describe the darkness that that held. And I came to realize that when we create what ifs of fear, God is not there. It is going to be dark. It is going to be terrifying. And when we stay in the what ifs of reality and the what ifs of faith, There's light in that. Even as terrible as it was, there was light all around it because I sensed God's presence. Mm. That's really profound to me as I'm hearing you explain it. I mean, just step away from your situation and look at life in general. (laughs) We are are so good at spinning out what-ifs, aren't we? Yes. Not in the positive. We spin out naturally the what-ifs and the negative, don't we? Absolutely. It's our bent. And when we don't know how to capture those and just stop that and join a natural curiosity that we've also been given, which is to look at the circumstance and realize that what we're projecting is what we know right now, Mm. but we can't know what's actually coming next. What have you discovered, Kelly? How do you walk into that space of not spinning out the negative what ifs, but just trusting in the outcome that you really have no clue what's going to happen unless the spirit tells you? It's really something that you have to discipline yourself to do. When I would do those different endings, it felt really indulgent. I'll be honest. It felt kind of like watching a movie I shouldn't watch. Mm -hmm. And it felt kind of like, don't go there, but I'm going to. So when I learned how really empty and dark those places are, I also learned that that's not a place I want to go. And so just like scripture teaches us to capture thoughts, I would just really imagine myself snatching that that thought bubble mm-hmm. right above my head and looking at it in my hand and opening my hand and surrendering it to the truth. What's true about this? And when I would see what was true about it, and usually nothing, it would be a lot easier for me to release it. Let's dig into that a little bit more. Isn't that something that you train people to better comprehend in your coaching of identity? It is really, yes. I don't know a better way to deal with trauma and suffering and pain that all of us experience than to really know that we are hearing God's voice. You know, I think Paul tells us in scripture over and over again, that suffering is something that is part of our lives, that it's not something we get a pass on, that bad things do happen to quote unquote good people, that it's actually an invitation to intimacy. When I think back on that whole attack story and the trauma that I experienced, How I knew God in that, I would never trade. But would I want to go back to that whole experience? Oh, no, never. But man, is that valuable to me and is that precious to me? It's probably one of the highest points in my life and the lowest points in my life. So when we are in those kinds of situations and we hear God's voice and we're invited, we see that as an invitation to trust Him 
that's where we really can know God. We don't know him through a walk in the park where everything's going great. Like we can know him when things are tough and we have no option but to rely on him and to be guided by his spirit and to hear his voice. So it is really my honor and my delight as an identity coach to help people really learn to hear God's voice and especially to learn to hear what he calls them in their most intimate places with him. For me to know that he calls me his girl and that he just pulls me in close, I just picture him throwing his arm around my shoulder and we're just in step and mm. we're just walking and talking. And, you know, in that kind of posture, I feel like we can do anything. Yeah. With respect to the people that you're coaching right now, I'm going to assume here that the number one need that people believe they have is to hear the voice of God, or is it something else? It is really why people call us. They want to know their identity. They want to understand really what their purpose is in life. People are kind of really lost in all of that. And so often they get caught up in the external, like, what should I do, this job or that job? Where should I live, here or there? And, you know, it's really a lot like picking from a dessert buffet. Do you want chocolate cake or cookies? Do you want ice cream? Do you want sundaes? It's all okay. Some of it's going to lead to maybe a little easier life. Some of it might be a little harder. But when you come to realize that no matter what you pick, no matter what you pick, God's with us Hmm. and He's walking with us. So before I have calls, and I know they're coming because they're all scheduled, I'll just sit for a moment and ask the Lord, what do you want this person to know? And it's just really so fun that although I'm expecting variety of answers, inevitably, I hear God saying, remind them of my love. So I end up sitting on the call the whole time, just trying to think and listen for the places where they most need reminded of how God loves them. Yeah, so precious. I'm feeling prompted to go back again to the hearing God's voice discussion. And back when you were just a girl, And you heard the Lord tell you to pick up those pieces of paper. And then, of course, the reality that you were hearing him all along in the midst of that trauma and that attack. When you hear the voice of God, in your experience, has it been shockingly familiar? In other words, do you hear your own voice inside of you, what you think is your own voice, but in reality, you've actually been hearing the Spirit of God speak to you? You know, people hear God in all kinds of different ways. And I guess for me, it's, of course, it's not really a voice because it's not really audible. It'll be just like a whisper. It's not a sound. I couldn't say I know the sound per se of God's voice, but I just sense him speaking. And when I sense him speaking, I can visualize that his hand is always reaching out in invitation. And whenever I hear a voice or a word or a thought or a, not a sound, but like a a thought, I'm sensing something, Mm -hmm. and the hand of that thought is pointing at me, or it's standing over me and looking down at me, that is not God's voice. Even when I'm totally out of line, totally out of line, His voice is going to be an open hand that's reaching for me and saying, come with me, Kelly, I got better for you. That's so good, because many of us, I think, view that type of interaction where He's standing above, standing aside as the sternness of God speaking to us. Yeah, that's the accuser. That's the voice of the accuser. He points and he accuses. And sometimes we're guilty, but the voice of God doesn't accuse. It invites. What a distinction. Is there anything that you feel prompted to share as we finish up? And I'm then going to ask you to pray for our listeners. Yeah, you know, I guess I would just say that 
although these things have happened to me and they're not things that happen to other people, the connector for this, for your audience, for the people listening to this, is just the reality that we all have trauma. Not all of us have the big capital T trauma, but we all have little T trauma and it happens all the time. And when we learn to recognize that as not just a challenge we're going through or a temptation of the enemy or you know, something else that we kind of write off and excuse as, well, that's just how it is, Murphy's Law or any of those things. But when we actually look at those and say, this is all an invitation to intimacy with God, then we look at it differently. We respond to it differently. We move in instead of backing away and we find God in those moments. So I would say really that the thing I most want to communicate through my story is to see that in the big things and in small things, we find God in those moments. And it is against those backdrops of struggle and suffering that we know God. And we find that He is always for us. When my girls were little and they would have bad dreams, they had to be pretty little because of what I would have them do. I would hold my hands clasped really tightly together with sort of a little space inside. And I would tell them, pull my fingers apart. And they would yank on my fingers and pull on my thumbs and I would resist and they couldn't get them apart. And I would say to them, as I opened my hand, this is where we are. We're safe in God's hands so that nothing touches us except what he allows for our good and his glory. So the struggles that come into our lives really can be gifts because they reflect the relationship that he knows that he can trust us with this because we will trust him with this. How can people find out more about you and your coaching? I'm on identityexchange.com. So you can find me there. I'm listed as a coach and I'm also available through email. Brian, I think you have a way of posting that for people that want to get in touch with me. I'll put it in the show notes. Definitely. Yeah, Yeah. that'd be great. Thank you. As we finish up here, we'd love to have you pray for our listeners, please, Kelly. Yeah, I'd be happy to. God, people are hurting. I know that. I just sense it because I've hurt. And there are still times when my heart is hurting. And I know that trauma is real and it can feel dark and isolating. And those what ifs of fear just knock at our door and threaten to overtake us. So often we want to ask you, why don't you stop it? Why don't you intervene? It's hard to see invitation and intimacy and suffering. And it doesn't feel like a gift. But God, I know you do not cause suffering. Help us ask a different question, God. Instead of asking why, help us to pray, God, what do you want me to know? God, may we trust that you are always with us. May we know that you, through Christ, entered our suffering here in humanity, and that you walk with us, that you never leave us, and that you're always with us. God, I thank you for that. I thank you for how you've shown me that in the big things and the small that you constantly invite me to keep living that truth and that you constantly invite all of us to live that. God, may we hear your voice. May we learn to know that it's familiar, that it's invitational, and that it's the most loving thing we could ever say about ourselves. God, we do trust you, not always because we can trace your hand and understand your ways, but because you are trustworthy. Thank you for that. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Kelly, thank you for sharing your profound story. So appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for the opportunity. I really find so much value in getting to share the things that God shares with me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. 
Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.